This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with PhD researcher Tom Brown. He discusses his research into underrepresentation in the South Asian community in cricket, how this can be challenged from a talent ID perspective, as well as initiatives to help cricket clubs look for major gains within this area. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure you share it with friends and family. I hope you enjoy. Perfect. So, Tom, I know we've caught up quite extensively off air there, but I think there's a lot, uh, a lot of cheering the fans. So, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. How are things your end? All okay? Yep, all good with me. Excited to get going, and thanks very much for having me on. Perfect. So, I think a really good starting point here would be just for you to, I guess, discuss who you are, what you do, and I guess a little bit of why you do it as well. Sure. Um, so, my name's Tom Brown. I've just finished a, a PhD looking into effectively why so few British South Asian players transfer through the, the talent pathway in cricket. Um, and that's been a four-year journey working uh, in collaboration with Warwickshire uh, County Cricket Club, Essex County Cricket Club, the ECB and um, Birmingham City University. Uh, and effectively that journey took me a long way through lots of different sort of areas of literature, looking from everything from sort of like uh, inclusion and bias literature down to talent ID and sort of best practice around um, talent ID literature. But my own background, I obviously played cricket till I was about 20 properly. Uh, and then after that, I've, I played at Warwickshire. And then after that, I've sort of played Birmingham Premier League cricket for the last 10 years. Um, uh, and I, and I've, I've coached as well. So I'm the uh, assistant coach for the women's first 11 at Warwickshire as well. So my background was probably more of a practitioner than a researcher um, but then through various opportunities and sort of weird things happening in the world I ended up sort of falling into uh, a great opportunity to do this PhD actually about four years ago and uh, that's just been handed in I'm happy to say a big weight off my shoulders about uh, last month so yeah ready to, to discuss and, and move on from there. Yeah, I can imagine with the amount of work that goes into a PhD, getting that over the line was very pleasing. Knowing a few people, it does uh, take a while, a lot of research and stuff. So I think as a starting point, what is the definition of talent um, in, in a sporting context? And I guess, yeah, and how do you identify that? Yeah, do you know what's really interesting? I, I, I didn't get put on the paper, but I um, two or three of my colleagues at, West, uh, sorry, at Birmingham um wrote a paper trying to define talent um and their sort of overall conclusion was that they couldn't <laughs> because uh, everyone uses it in a different sort of context and when you say talent to me it's always if someone's talented you're almost always talking about the step up from where you are at the moment or the, or reaching where you're at so uh, for example, if you were a club cricketer and you're talented, you might be a county cricketer. Whereas if you're a county cricketer and you're really talented, you might be an England cricketer. That that kind of um, measure. So it's a really good paper, actually. Um, but it's, it's about defining talent uh, in the system. And the, the, like I said, the overall conclusion is it's very difficult to do from a literature base because we've, we've all got such different definitions of, of where it is and what it stands at. But ultimately, if you were to press for what my... Um, my definition of it would be it would be around achieving or ha having the, the natural ability to uh, actually don't even know what I'm going to say <laughs> yeah, but um, I'm trying I'm, I'm, I'm that paper's really biased me because I remember every definition they gave and how they tore it apart so I'm trying not to, <laughs> to hit each uh, no, but I, I think that's a really good and interesting starting point because everyone's perception is different of what talent is and I think you mentioned a bias earlier sometimes that can be a bias you talk in a cricketing context like i might think that someone who can bowl you know 98 miles an hour is a really talented player whereas your opinion might be well no they've just got good physical gifts that allow them to do that their actual accuracy and stuff is very poor so i think it is a you know a really important contributing factor when we discuss talent identification to acknowledge there is a level of bias from individuals that are looking to do that um so i guess from a again going down that id perspective are there any key characteristics in terms of what talented individuals are put in inverted commas, inverted commas 
have or what they're perceived to have to allow you to identify them? Well, that's that's again one of the real crux of my research was around, and the conclusion to it was the talent system in cricket is far too subjective, and, and like you said, that bias sort of falls in. We all use terms like talented and uh, you know something like oh he's got something about him uh, or her this this player, and we're really reliant on coaches' opinions to make decisions. Uh, and I think one of my big recommendations from my research was we need to start building more objective measures for talent. And there are things out there that, that correlate with high performance. So uh, there's something called your perceptual cognitive skills, so how well you can identify cues before they happen. So like in, in cricket, for example, if a bowler's running in, how early in their delivery strike could you as the batter tell what length the ball is going to be bowled, if it's going to be a slower ball, if it's going to be an away swinger, etc. And that highly correlates, the higher scores in those types of tests highly correlate with performance. Yet in cricket, we don't, if you said that to uh, many coaches, I'm not sure they'd understand the concept or, or tested it. And, and I'll be really honest, before I looked into my, my own research, I wouldn't have known what that is, yet it's a really good indicator of talent, um, or sort of predicting future performance, should I say. Um, so I, I guess that's one of the things that cricket looks for, sort of falls back on. And the other unique thing, or roughly unique thing that cricket has is, Bowling and batting are almost completely different sports within one sport, uh, and the measures that you're looking for are really different. So, going through my own research, we, we did a, a really good piece around sort of early specialization uh, versus early sampling. So, players playing one sport compared to players playing multiple sports, and we found that batters um, could specialize early, whereas bowlers tended to be more later developers and therefore had a bit more of a background from, from multiple sports. Um, additionally, you, yeah, the, the, basically the, the two sports are completely different. You're looking for different physiological types as well. So bowlers, especially fast bowlers, tend to be, you know, six foot pl plus, uh, long arms, fast levers, fast switch muscle fibers, etc. Um, whereas bowl, oh, that's what I was going to say, the relative age effect stuff. So batters tend to be born in birth quarters one and two compared to bowlers both in, in birth quarters three and four, which is a really interesting thing that came out of the study. Uh, uh, as well. So in terms of what we're looking for, if I'm being really honest and harsh on a cricket perspective, I think it's far too subjective at the top end at the moment and and we need to be developing more objective measures to, to get better at that. I think there's loads to unpick from what you said there, but I think... Sorry, really... sorry, no, 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 that's, it's good. Listen, it's better than going the other way and having very little to say because that would be a long podcast for everyone to listen to. So um, I think a good starting point is for us to get a perspective of what your uh, PhD was about okay and then maybe some key observations or key recommendations that you had or a summary off the back end of it and then we can obviously work through like you said the relative age effect or confirmation bias all that type of stuff that I'm sure has come into it. Sure yeah so so the PhD was looking into like I said earlier why British South Asian players aren't transferring through the talent pathways to professional cricket so if you look just at the raw numbers I think 30 percent of uh, players who play cricket in the country are British South Asian, yet less than 5% of professional cricketers are. And it was sort of my job to understand why that was. And when we looked through the talent pathway data, so the representation in talent pathways, there was about 20% uh, at first class counties were represented, was British South Asian representation. So clearly, whilst that's obviously a lower number than 30, that's not a significant drop off to that 5%. Um, and, and the real issues that we, we need to tackle a lot when we talk about inclusivity and diversity isn't necessarily at participation it's more at the transfer of talent through the through the pathway so what i did was i i, I thought right we need to start looking all elite sport is it's supposed to be a meritocracy it has to be can't just be sort of quoted and we need to be hitting x y and z in in terms of representation it should be based on if you're good enough so i tried to use what cricket currently uses as measures of good enough and, and and compare and contrast between white and British South Asian players. So initially we looked at performance data. Um, so I know they're not the perfect metrics, but it, we did a, a longitudinal study um, that was sort of retrospective over a 15 year period, looking at uh, players batting and bowling averages uh, and the wickets and runs scored. Uh, and we found no significant differences between the Asian and white players. So immediately you sort of look there and go, well, there's a there's an issue with 
well, it, it, this issue in representation is not necessarily due to performances on the pitch. Um, and that was from under 10s all the way up to second 11 cricket. Um, so then we, uh, we we brought together a more uh, sort of holistic study and looked at the wider elements that, that brought into talent selection. Uh, and we sort of found that even the ways that we select players or the the, the 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 metrics that we looked for to select players were different for Asian and white lads. So a big stereotype around South Asian players was um, that they're not fit enough. And whilst that was certainly true that from a CAG, so that's a county age group perspective, the white lads were fitter than the Asian lads. When it got to the elite performance end and the, the academy plus sort of players, the Asian lads were actually fitter than the white lads. So again, that's an example of potentially how a stereotype developed over looking at the majority and saying they're not fit, but not actually looking at the guys who are closest to making it and analysing what was going on with them. We also looked at their educational background and their priorities, because again, another stereotype was around British South Asians wanting to go off and become doctors and lawyers and prioritising other careers to cricket. And again, the study we did highlighted no difference between Asian and white lads as to which ones went on to university. So effectively, we, we sort of all piled that together um, to look into the talent pathway itself and go, well, what are we doing that's that's wrong? And that's where I said before, we sort of realised that this whole talent selection process was heavily subjective. And, and within it, um, we, we, we sort of identified what we called as a cultural ignorance. Um, we obviously, when you're talking about race inclusion, um, you've got to be very careful around the language you use. Um, and there certainly were instances of racism that we, we pulled out from the study. But ultimately, we tried, uh, well, we didn't try, we, it naturally came across that defining what was happening as racist was different to defining it as an ignorance towards what was going on. And whilst some literature would push those two things together, um, we, we sort of drew a line and said, look, the practitioners that are out there aren't purposefully doing these things. They're, they're ignorant to the effects that they, they have. So, for example, we looked at players um, behaviours from a British South Asian background and you look at things like so within collectivist culture where the uh, the, the the what's the word the, the goals of the group outweigh the goals of the individual on which is typically seen in Asian and Aborigine cultures you'll see things like respect is shown differently um, they, they won't make eye contact with adults they'll look down it to show respect they won't challenge an, a senior figure of authority whether that's a coach or just an elder that they're not going to question back. And then when we look for things we're looking for in the pathway, um, you look for character being one of these sort of big woo words that that is, again, very subjective to assess. But if you're not aware of all these sort of cultural differences, and we can go really in depth about those, that um, you're not going to be able to assess a player's character and truly understand them. And I think that's where players started to get marginalised there. They'd look at a player and go, he's not asking me questions, he's not engaging, he's looking away, he's got a bad attitude, as opposed to actually this is how he shows respect and how he's trying to learn in his own culture. Uh, and once you're labelled with those types of things, I'm sure you'll be aware, it's very hard to shake that label because then goes into a changing room and someone says, oh, I was working with X, he's this, so it suddenly starts changing other people's minds before they've even met him. And, and, and that's where... You know that this sort of turn that was the biggest thing we looked at for this turn in, in representation yeah i think that's a really fascinating piece you talk about the the behavioral side like you mentioned there in terms of um at points misunderstanding what respects look like in, in in different cultures and um a big one for me i find as well is around we look for someone who maybe does ask questions or something like that and they're really outgoing but they're not always the ones that are actually taken on board or trying to process information I, i've recently been on a couple of courses and trying to i guess find myself if you like and my immediate reaction to when i get asked a question is to think that's mm -hmm. my main thing is i need to go into um, try and think about the answer before i then respond and so at times people mislabel that and go oh, he's not really listening or not really engaging but actually i'm just trying to make sense of what's being asked prior to giving a statement which you know 9 10 14 18 year old boys there's going to be some that are the same 
there's going to be some that in that paradigm where they just want to go actually before i ask answer this question and look silly in front of the group or give a wrong answer i just want to take a couple of minutes to think about that so i think yeah just discussing that kind of space of individualize what does that individual actually i guess bring to the table from a performance perspective but and but also them as a character is there anything that we're missing or is there anything that we can support them with to either align more to our values or we more align more to theirs to help yeah. them and all that type of stuff i think it's, it's a really fascinating space and on, on how that coach the athlete demographic is is improving so, so the only thing really that's sort of conclusively been identified to correlate with performance in cricket from a, a character point of view is resilience. And, and we don't really have any ways of measuring resilience at the moment. So like I said, it becomes subjective. It becomes, well, what do you think? And if you look at on the pitch stuff, if you play 20 games of cricket a season for your county, you might get one or two opportunities to genuinely show resilience within the game. And if you fail at them, are you, what, you're, you're not resilient or it might get missed and, and this is what we're trying to say is that like, well, instead of subjectively assessing someone on their behaviours and, and like you said there, about you're, you're, you're trying to think internally. They, a lot of these lads are, are taught, taught not to respond. So all of a sudden us pushing for, for answers and questions and judging them on how well they fit into that environment isn't particularly you know, fair because they've, they've been taught all their life. When you're being taught to, you, you look down and you, you're quiet no matter what you think. And actually, if you speak back and look them in the eye, then you're being disrespectful. But we end up picking those lads because they're going, oh, you know, he's giving me something. He's, he's getting something back. So um, I think I think there's there's loads out there. And one of the big things as well within cricket, we spoke just before we, we came live, was about the schooling, the, the private schooling compared to state schooling, which is a, a huge issue in cricket, which maybe we can touch in a minute. But one of the big things, again, from a character point of view, is lads that go to private schools are obviously and, and girls but they're obviously in smaller class sizes which correlates with better psychosocial development you're, you're more interacting with adults more you're interacting with your peers more because there's fewer of you yet go to a state school where there's 40 kids in a class or 30 kids in a class you've really got two options you either kind of go introverted or you go very extroverted and try and get attention and monish you become a bit of a, a rascal don't you become a bit a bit outspoken and and that's what we're trying to say these differences have got nothing to do with if you talked about talent being sort of naturally distributed at birth that no one's born you know where people have talent. Not, not there isn't a certain area of the country where there's more talent than others how do we access those areas and there's lots of these barriers that kids get sort of forced on them going to state schools being brought up in different cultures that ultimately we need to get better at measuring and and those measurements have to be directly correlated to what affects performance not kind of what we want to work with and and what we, we enjoy and what we think fits our model of talent yeah i think that's really interesting you mentioned around um earlier kind of um perceptions or stereotypes that are put on groups yeah. um i know for example there was a study in football recently and i'm, I'm going to do this justice to the person because i can't remember who put it out but they looked at um a poland versus ghana game um very niche i know but basically they did something called 3d rendering where they removed any identifiable uh data or individuals stadium pitch yeah. um and basically had one team all blue in the entire player looked like a smurf if you like yeah. the other team entire red and then asked people to um uh kind of report on specific players to what mm. they saw from a particularly from a physical physical aspect um and it basically highlighted there was no discernible difference when you removed all factors so obviously there's a perception for african players that they're particularly quicker particularly stronger etc but they actually said when you remove it and looked at the just i guess raw data if you like there wasn't a discernible difference and then you started focusing more on technical attributes all of that type of stuff of the blue team or red team which i think is a really interesting piece in terms of talent id moving forward how do you incorporate that from an individual so you're not getting that confirmation bias but okay, this is a very long-winded question to get back to the thing but how do you what yeah what um i guess stereotypes are being challenged or would be challenged from a cricketing perspective that have kind of been in inverted columns known for long periods of times that maybe aren't as true as as maybe previously suggested. Well, the, well, look, the, the 
like I said before, the two big ones around South, well, three big ones around South Asians were not fit enough. And with that sort of becomes uh, an attitude of not having the right attitude, being lazy and uh, having a poor diet. The second one was going to um, university uh, and, and wanting to prioritise over careers. And the third one was fielding. Uh, we didn't test fielding, if I'm being really honest. So again, that I don't know what the answers are to that. Um, having I, I, just to sort of go on a slight tangent, I run a, um, a non-profit that helps uh, called South, the South Asian Cricket Academy, SACA, and that tries to help um, British South Asian lads get back into the professional game, which maybe we can touch on a bit later. But I, I basically worked with a, sort of the country's best uh, South Asian players that aren't contracted at the minute. And and whilst there's sort of like in any team variance in it, there's some unbelievable fielders in there. So again, I think it's more a stereotype label to them rather than a, a rule. Um, but going back to the diet and nutrition stuff, diet is going to be is going to be different. And one of the things we're trying to push is when you're a nutritionist, or you bring in a nutritionist to work with players, how culturally aware is that nutritionist of the different palates and diets that are that are out there? And are we prescribing sort of chicken and broccoli to guys that aren't? necessarily going to go home and cook chicken and broccoli also looking at who makes food in the household so there was a especially within and this is a generalization but within uh, south asian culture a lot of we see throughout the talent pathway a lot of the dads coming in to do stuff yet at home it's the mothers making food so if a dad's coming to a nutrition workshop how is the message being pushed back to it to to home to cook the right food and if i if we do bring in all the mothers and the, the women who, who do cook the food, and that is a huge generalization. I don't want to sound too stereotypical, but if we do bring them in on the people who are making the food at home, are they going to listen to a, to be blunt, a white, young, m m probably straight male who's a talent nutritionist who's just got a master's? Or do, do we need to bring in someone who's sort of more familiar with their backgrounds? Like a, we've been looking to bring in like a South Asian chef who, who might be female to come and talk to them about these are better foods to cook at home and this is how you cook it and being more culturally aware of what's going on and just making the program more bespoke to the needs of the individual rather than sort of I think we've got a bit of a shoe well maybe she wants a bit stronger term but we've got a bit of a system where we say we judge players on how well they fit into what we think professional sports should look like rather than how do we adapt to get the absolute best performance out of our our individuals that we're working with. I think that's a really interesting piece and what's flagging straight away for me there is why not have someone who's got through the pathway, their mum come in. So like yeah. Adele Rashid, who I'm sure parents have been very supportive to getting through the pathway, is there an opportunity to get his mum to come in and go, actually, you know, we've learned this as he's gone and played for England and whatnot at those younger age groups we're trying to support him. These are the type of foods that we could support him with. It's someone that probably resonates probably parents will listen because it's the creme de la creme of someone you know playing unbelievable international cricket but straight away i'm thinking that's a really nice way to have that blended approach of like you said individualizing it but doing it in a way that um you know speaks to speaks to you know that top level that's what we're aiming for and we've got someone that hopefully you, this will resonate with you yeah, yeah, definitely. It's good. I'm going to nick that and suggest it. To, uh, suggest it. But one of the problems with that is so few have made it through the pathway. Yeah, you, you've got Moen and um, Adil at Yorkshire, and now Moen's at Warwickshire. Uh, there's obviously quite a lot going on at Yorkshire at the minute. Um, but you, you look through that, and I think there's only twenty British South Asian, twenty to twenty-five British South Asian lads that are currently playing. How many of them, like you say, are like the, of the stature of Adil Rashid? Um, that you know are in a position to be able to talk to the community about what they did you know fewer and fewer there's probably four or five that are around the the top end of the, the pathway so yes i think that is a, a good idea and something we should definitely be be looking to do and we, we do it a little bit at, at warwickshire with uh, Munir ali who's moen's father and he runs an academy out of warwickshire and he's a really good sort of hub or communicator between the pathway and the, the program because a lot of people go to him uh, and, and not only that, we can kind of check what we're doing with him and, and he can almost be a, not an unofficial consultant, if you like, around what's going on in the Asian community. But even then, you've got to be careful that, you know, you, you're not alienating certain groups by talking to certain groups and you've got to ensure you're, you're wide and coming. It's, it's quite a difficult task to make sure you're not just ticking a box and saying look, we've got X on the board or X on the pathway and therefore we're, we're inclusive.
um, it's ensuring that you, you are genuinely engaging and, and coming up with ideas to, like I say, adapt the pathway to their needs rather than adapt players to our needs. Maybe a, a deal with she's mum could become a full-time thing and good money out of that as you went around <laughs> all the, all the county. So I guess the, the next question is how do you challenge those perceptions? So from a, I guess, a scouting perspective for those individuals that are going to be going down to a cricket green on a Saturday, Tuesday, Sunday afternoon or whatever that is, um, or to coaches that are going to be working with those players in, in the pathway, how do you constructively challenge those perceptions to say, actually, let's look at this from an individual basis or let's look at this on raw data rather than perceptions that historically you thought or um, information you've been told secondhand? Because, again, it might just be that the previous coach didn't get on with that player and you might actually have a great time with them, which happens quite a lot. So, yeah, how do you go constructively challenging that? Well, well, like I said, I think we need we do need to build more objective measures. That that cricket is probably still a couple of years off off doing because you've got to you've got we've got the foundations for the research around well what sort of things correlate and like I said before things like resilience and perceptual cognitive skills. But now, right, how do we implement that into a talent pathway? And and obviously that will take some time to evaluate and get right. Um, but ultimately, the way I've been doing it originally when I I went around talking to the counties, I would sort of you know by complete fluke everything that kicked off with Yorkshire kicked off and for those who don't know there was um, a former player accused um, Yorkshire of institutional racism and a independent inquiry and the DCMS hearing with the government sort of agreed with those uh, accusations so the last two or three years there's been uh, sort of racism in cricket has been a really high profile topic but that was by complete fluke that this landed whilst I was doing my PhD looking into this so I kind of went from being in the background doing a bit of research to being flung in front of people to go, no, we're researching, here's our research. Oh, God. Um, but I think the way, I, the original way I went around talking to people was from that sort of inclusion and the right thing to do sort of thing. We need to help our community, et cetera. But not, I don't mean to speak ill of anybody and, and, and nobody disagreed with anything we were saying, but it was almost a sort of, we're, we're we're listening to you because we have to listen to you sort of thing it would, we we can't not listen to this sort of stuff especially at this time what we've i've found now is that there really isn't a performance advantage to getting this right and selling that and being able to unlock the different players and different sort of pockets of the community will provide a massive performance advantage so for example at warwickshire i think it's 56 percent of the pathway are now british south asian so if you've got more than half of your players coming through the door and you've got a system that doesn't suit them, it's it's a it's common sense really. We need to adapt this. We need to change it. And we've and we've not produced many South Asian cricketers in the last ten years. In the last four years, however, um, we've produced three or four. So you know we're starting to see see that change. So what we're 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 having to do to to coaches is simply challenge their understanding of where they're at. And and the one thing we're very aware of this might be different to football is cricket doesn't have full-time employees throughout the entire pathway so when you're talking to people you've got to be very careful that you're you're talking about people's sort of second job or their their ho not hobby but you know something they're doing out of passion rather than for money um and, and that's where you've got to be careful not to alienate and go and go and you guys are old school you guys are this blah, blah, blah. they're still really key parts of the talent pathway and they've, they've got a lot of experience we can draw from um it's ensuring that balance is there that they're, they're keeping up to date and they're seeing it as this is the best thing to do, not only from a, you know, the right moral thing to do, but also from a performance thing to do. And that, that seems to have resonated a lot more than than people sort of seeing, obviously, the BLM movement, the as in Rafiq stuff at Yorkshire, all this stuff. And some people starting to roll their eyes at, at this sort of stuff being pushed in, in society and, and going, well, yes, there, there is all that. But also there's this undoubted performance environments if we can learn to lock over half of our pathway, for example. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point because everyone talks around the marginal gains, don't they? They say that the 1%, which I think could be wrong, was created by British cycling in terms of the way they were doing the aerodynamic works and all that. Yeah. But you're right in terms of actually, is this a really underutilized resource or undervalued resource that if we get right from a performance perspective, can take our group from here 
up to here. And if we do it before anyone else, you know, those innovators often get monopoly in markets, don't they? Essentially, if you're talking from a technological base rather than just uh, we're talking about people here. But, you know, if you manage to get a, a head in the market, often you'll stay there because you're able to do it so well. You've got obviously resources in that environment and stuff. So I think that that's a really interesting perspective to say, actually, if we do this right from a talent ID perspective, a coaching development perspective, and then pathway perspective, you could end up where we have more talented individuals in our groups. Now, that doesn't matter if it's South Asian, doesn't matter if it's black, doesn't matter if white, ultimately we will have more talented individuals in our pathway, which is what you all want. You know, coaches want to work with the best players. If that's 100% South Asian, that's 100% South Asian. If that's 100% white, that's 100% white. As long as we put in the pathway prior to that, we're comfortable that, as you said there, we're doing the morally right thing, but also we we have weaned out the best players, our pathway from all these different areas. You know, that's what coaches want ultimately. Yeah, look, 92% of the country go to state school and 30% of people who play cricket are South Asian. So that, and, and we typically have a system that heavily favours white, privately educated players. And you go, well, you know, and then like you said, elsewhere, we're looking for the one percenters and, and, you know, you're looking for these marginal gains, but we're sort of turning around going, well, hang on, we're missing the vast majority of the population here. Why don't we, you could make huge gains by, by simply attracting them rather than looking for you know spending millions on trying to gain one percent at the very top end spend millions trying to engage the the, the or, or design better talent pathways so, so to discuss that a little bit further in terms of the uh, the barriers that that state to private school has or some of the barriers that they may have what does that look like from a practical uh, perspective i guess in terms of identification or level of support or yeah what what are the actual barriers that that puts up well, the, 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 the absolute obvious one is level of facilities. I mean, you go to a private, some counties in professional society use private schools as bases to work out because the facilities are so good. So you compare that to, like I went to a state school and the cricket pitch was part of the playground. And by year nine, I was teaching cricket because I knew more than the teachers. Um, and I don't mean that in a horrible way, but you, you, you have guys at a state school who are hired as PE teachers. They've done their PGCE. They're, they're, um, you know, they've almost sort of got that broad understanding. They usually have one sport that they do, which often isn't cricket, but then they've got that broad understanding of all other sports. Cricket also falls into the summer term, um, which in um, <clears throat> obviously sort of creates a problem for fixturing because of exams. So when you go to a private school, you've then got these unbelievable facilities. They then hire coaches um, that are usually ex-professionals or level three, four coaches that are cricket specific. They're literally hired to be there to run the cricket. Um, you look at the Department for Education's recommendation around sport in state schools. So they're the ones who decide or recommend what should happen with PE funding. And it's all about, you know, building an active life, getting kids active and, and, and a healthy way of living. It's not about elite performance. Whereas, kids at private or the private schools aren't restricted by that they can do what they want with their budgets and, and you do see some private schools not care about sport as much they might be performing arts or languages or other things but certainly when you go you see the big private schools that are sports orientated you, you look at the money they pump into it and you, you know there's obvious advantages um but the the main thing that the, the other thing you don't need a phd to, to look at millfield and compare it to a state school and go which one's better um but the things you can can't see behind the scenes like i touched on it a little bit earlier where you talked about smaller class sizes correlate with better psychosocial skills which means you're better at conversing with adults which means when you come to a talent pathway that subjectively assesses character you're more likely to be able to converse with those adults build relationships with coaches uh and get a sort of tick in that box for being a a good kid or a good character um additionally those coaches that work at private schools are well connected if we get a call from warwick um you know at warwick should say from michael powell who's a former captain of the club saying we've got a really good young player here or i get a phone call from mr smith at the state school you know just naturally we're, we're human that will mean different coming from 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 different things um we just uh changed the nomination process at warwickshire so what we used to do to get a trial is you had to be at a club or a school that would nominate you for a trial. And then we would 
invite everyone who got nominated in and we'd watch them and we'd go through our trial process and we'd select, select our teams. But what we really realized with that was one, we ended up with so many nominations that we had 800 kids come and trial. And it just meant that you had our best coaches looking at kids bowl into the side of the net and, you know, not be able to hold a bat and you go, this is a waste of time. And you, you lost the chance to, to really work with, um, the players that were closest, you know, that, in, and, you know, you're trying to talk about, identifying talent at a young age i'm sure you spoke to people in podcasts before about how difficult it is to predict future talent and if you pick a player compared to deselect a player if the, the, the effects that has on their development and their image of themselves and we were making these decisions quite quickly because we only had a small amount of time with them so what we've done now is we've now entered a video nomination round where anyone from any from as long as they've got a phone number can submit their videos through whatsapp and we did obviously have to go through a lot of data protection stuff with with those videos. But what it meant was we could sit uh, as a coaching group, go through the videos and, and in a way, to be kind, sort of wean out the ones we knew weren't going to be of a standard and offer them sort of generic feedback about what we, we are expecting at this level and what they can do to get better. But then we've got that whole trial period now free to work with the top sort of 20%. And then we can really analyze what. The, the, you know, really get to know the players, really understand their background, their training age, do all their maturation data because maturation and relative age biases, I know they're different, but they're really big in cricket. Um, so it just gives us a lot more time to, to do this. Sorry, I've completely gone off on one. I forgot what the question was, but, um, ultimately they're the different, oh, the difference between state and private school. Um, yeah. So, so there's, there's a plethora really, if I'm honest. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. As I said, I've actually seen Millfield a number of times. I've played there and also coached there, so I know exactly what you're on about. For anyone that doesn't, go and Google it. It's incredible, the facilities they got there. Um, and I, I compare that to my school, which, to be fair, was quite a sporty school. But, um, you know, we had one AstroTurf, if you want to call it that, pitch in the middle of two football pitches that got beaten up. And, um, yeah, it was interesting. So, yeah, I, I completely understand that. Um, I really like that idea around the, the the WhatsApp stuff. I'm just thinking now, as you were talking, in terms of from a football perspective, that might be a way to allow nominations to come in, but also try and make it um, more actionable in terms of who you're going to get opportunities with. I, I guess the next question for me is around that, what actionable things can clubs both in cricket but also outside of that i know we caught up a little bit off air in terms of some of the initiatives we're trying to start at southampton but i don't think this is an isolated issue i think there's probably um demographics up and down the country probably around the world being honest that are under represented slash undervalued slash under supported and that if people can get into those environments in the right way they probably untap a lot of major gains, not marginal ones. So what actionable things did did you and your team kind of come up with around the making sure that, you know, these individuals have opportunities to get into the pathway, to be uh, assessed fairly and appropriately, I think it's important in the pathway, but also hopefully allow them to progress through it so that, you know, as you mentioned earlier, they have enough of an opportunity where the best players get the opportunity, uh, get the advancement, regardless of, you know, backgrounds, particular type of interactions, all that type of stuff. It's really important that any intervention you do is bespoken, specifically targeted to where it needs to be. And, and I, I've spoke a lot when talking to you know boards and, and CEOs about being generic with um intervention so the typical one that you always see is sort of lumping interventions with boys and girls together and and especially when you talk about the, the south asian community there's going to be completely different barriers for um for boys and girls within the pathway so looking at the boys we know the problem is not getting them to the pathway it's getting them through it um therefore we've sort of we've done a huge education piece around the coaches um and like i said our academy representation um through Paul, Paul Greetham, who's the academy director, has had a sort of big push on on making sure the coaches are doing this and the, and the assessments are objective. And since we've done that, uh, the, the academy representation has gone from sort of about 15% to 80%. And then the last two lads that we've just signed to the professional team were both British South Asian lads. Um, so that, that seems to be working at, at that level. But then there are other counties that 
need to engage them into the pathway. So in Luton, for example, there's a big sort of street cricket environment um, down there uh, that don't necessarily play hardball cricket. Or, or if they do play hardball cricket, it's in sort of unofficiated or unofficial leagues that, that are recreational. So what they've created down there is a the Steelbacks Academy. So they align with the county, but they've created a college where they can go and do their either B Tech or A levels at, uh, and they can run a cricket program alongside it. Um, and a coach from the uh, from Northants goes and coaches on that program. So it's almost like an open sort of talent ID hub for these uh, for Northants, but it's also an, a chance for kids to go and continue going to further education but continue playing cricket and, and learn other things around cricket you know like the media and um, journalism all the other stuff that can come with come with cricket so that's sort of being bespoke to their needs um, also from the girls perspective um, like I said before running this, the SACA program the first thing that was questioned of me was I came up with this sort of big plan this is what we're going to do in men's cricket and the first thing which is quite rightly labeled me as well, what are you going to do for the women and, and I went well my background is I, I actually work in the women's game um, and my partner is a professional female cricketer. Um, but I didn't know the needs of the South Asian population. I, I could anecdotally guess at some of them. So what our first thing to do was we've created a, looking at the very simple data, where is the drop off in representation? It was early, it was under 15. Therefore, we've created a program at under 15s. But the big thing we've done is pledge a lot of funding towards researching, right, what are the specific barriers to uh, the British South Asian um, female population, and then we can design a bespoke um, program to help them once we fully understand the the uh, the issues. And I think that's the big advice I'd give is that, especially in today's society, everyone's sort of rushing, going right. We need to do something, come up with you know six point plan or something that goes together. And you go, well, how, what is actually underpinning that? And is it better? that we spend a couple of years, I know it's gonna be a bit biased from a researcher, but really understanding the problem and really understanding the specific things that we need to eliminate and then putting in an intervention. Because I think the problem we've got is a lot of organizations put out these plans. They think that'll take the, the heat off them. They've, they've done something good for the community. And most of the time it is done in goodwill, but then they get the blame thrown back at them in three years time when that six point plan didn't work or they or it wasn't as effective as, as desired. So. For me, understand the problem, design a bespoke um, uh, sort of intervention, uh, and and then then implement. Yeah, no, I think it's really interesting. Again, something we spoke about previously is understanding the demographics. Southampton's catchment is quite a big one, but you've got a lot of you know major cities or towns in that area, all that come with different things. You look at Portsmouth, for example, is in a catchment. It's a dock town you've got people that are going to be coming in and out of there with you know navy all of that type of stuff you compare that to you know a south london population that will be very very different which you then compare that to a wiltshire that again will be very very different you know so understanding what each of those demographics has in terms of population and personnel and what some of the challenges are like you said there is really paramount london you can't move for the number of kids that are going to be playing football compare that to wiltshire which to get from one t village or one town to the other probably takes you 25 minutes i've got no problem saying that because that's where i live so if anyone gives me a stick about that that's fine but like you said there the understanding of what the actual challenge is is more important than actually just trying to fix it because if you just try and fix it without actually knowing then you're probably going to go down a wrong avenue and waste more resources and more time whereas if you do the prep work it allows you to move quicker and more actionable when you then do do make that jump into it if you like yeah definitely and the big thing around it is trust and there's a huge breakdown of trust at the moment i think and I'm, i think i'm okay in saying this but between ethnic minorities and the ecb for example or, or cricket in general maybe maybe not the ecb specifically um and, and you see almost now every time you see a plan announced or something announced you're if whether you're on twitter and i know twitter's not the best gauge of society but uh you know whether you're speaking to people and immediately there's that it won't work this won't happen and because there's been so many failed attempts before like i said that so there was a study into racism in 1998 2011 2014 and now me now 
So, you know, we've been going on for 20 odd years and not a lot's changed. If anything, if you're being really harsh, the problem's probably got worse in terms of representation at the top level. Uh, and that's where we talk about from a, a trust perspective. And you see things like the ACE program being launched, uh, which is the Afro-Caribbean engagement program for cricket, um, which is trying to help the Afro-Caribbean um, community. And I think it's declined by 75% since 2001. Um, and the South Asian community are now less than 5% representation in professional cricket. So you're going, look, this is going the wrong way. And we're going to run out of people to use as role models quite quickly if we're not careful. So role modeling is so important as well for the community that, you know, we've got Mo and Ali, we've got Adil Rashid, we've got Jofra Archer right now, but they might not, they're not going to be around forever. We really need to, to capitalize uh, on that. No, that makes complete sense. And before I ask this last question, you mentioned a little bit around the, the SACA initiative and, and what that looks like. Um, I guess a little bit of promotion for you guys will, will go a long way for anyone that does listen. So do you just want to explain to people exactly what it is and if they are or do have any interest, how they, I guess, can get in touch to try and either support the initiative or maybe even be part of it? Yeah, sure. So we basically run a three-pronged approach to try and help representation in professional cricket or in elite cricket, should I say, for um, uh, for the British South Asian community. Uh, and it's designed as a short to medium-term intervention. So our goal is to become obsolete within sort of three to six years. We don't want to be part of the talent pathway that's relied on forever. It's more a, a short injection, if you like, of um, providing British South, the British South Asian community with an additional opportunity. So, so what we've sort of recognized when, when, when I've been talking through all this stuff with you today is there are problems and they're not overnight fixes. Um, and it's going to take time to, you know, <laughs> redesign or, or, or improve talent pathways. And there's lots of players out there that don't have time to wait. And like I just said, we're running out of role models. We're running out of, I think it was 20% of the guys that are left in the British South Asian players are over the age of 34 or 33. So that they don't, not to write anyone off, but they might get, you know, they might not going to be around for the next four or five years. So what we do is we've run an academy, which we're now regionalizing. Um, so, and that academy would sort of compile the best British South Asian players. Uh, from a men's point of view, it compiled a mixture of white and British South Asian coaches to work together and understand, help each other with gauging understanding around what's required in the professional environment. Uh, and we challenged county second 11s to um to fixtures we played 14 of them last year and we we, we drew 4-1-2 uh, and lost the rest but we competed in pretty much every game we played in and like i said these guys are playing against professional players and they they all have full-time jobs or are, you know they're just not professional cricketers so it highlights the talents out there uh, that we can compete with guys that are professional cricketers with guys who aren't um and we were really successful or i'm <laughs> If I do say so myself, we were successful with, uh, we got three lads signed this year. So one signed to Worcestershire, one signed to Somerset and uh, exclusive ones about to be announced, uh, signed to the Morgan um, as well. Uh, and we also got one of our coaches signed to a um, first class county as well. So, you know, we've, we've, we've really pushed these lads in terms of their performances. Um, Kashif, who was signed at Worcester, hit the ground running even at Worcester and was straight into the first 11 and was one of their players of the year um, as well. So, like I said, that men's programme is running at the moment. We're, we're, we're aiming for a three-pronged approach to help players, coaches and continue the research. So, like I said before, a big thing to highlight around the girls' game was, yes, we're running an under-15 girls' academy at the moment. And that academy is being used to, um, to, to help our learning around what's needed um as well so we're bringing the coaches in and we're almost yes they get free coaching sessions it's really good ratio with coaches but our actual aim is to learn from the players about their culture and what they want to do differently so it's completely free reign and from that we'll have two phds uh working alongside the programs to try and basically advance and fasten that learning as quick as we can to to implement back into the county system so hopefully like i said in three to six years time we're, we're no longer needing the system sort of organically producing players so if you are interested in helping the way to contact us, uh, this um, saka-uk.com um, is the um, web address. We're also on Twitter, saka-uk. 
Uh, and like I said, give us a follow, give us a shout, and we're more than happy to help um, players and coaches. The way to apply is there's a phone number, which is on the website and on Twitter. Um, and like I said, with the Warwickshire stuff, it's a video application process that we regularly assess and bring guys in um, and girls in to, to showcase their skills, and then we, we go from there. Perfect. Yeah, really good initiative, which I think um, hopefully there's some interest from, from people listening. So last question for me, and normally I go down the, the player or coach route in terms of who's the best player you coach with or against or coach with or against. But um, I'm going to give you two options. It can be either that, so who's the best player or coach you've worked with or against and why, or who is um, the most inspirational individual in this space that we've discussed today and why so who's the person that maybe you're seeing make the most strides or someone for us all to support because you think the work they're doing so impressive um right from a player point of view uh i played with the likes of um moan ali tom banton and ollie stone uh who will play for england so they're easy to, to point out as people that i was massively out of my depth playing with uh, but still was on the field at the same time so I will claim it um in terms of the most inspirational person I guess it's actually away from um the practitioner side of things um can I cheat and say two that's absolutely fine one will be um uh well I guess they're both the same it'll be um one will be Paul Greetham at Warwickshire who's the academy director there and he not only was sort of the inspiration behind my research, but I think the hardest thing for researchers is finding a practitioner who's willing to put his money where his mouth is and actually implement what you're learning. And I think that's one of the, that's a really invaluable asset. And, and you can, the, the proof's in the pudding with what's going on at Warwick at the moment. The representation um, is really heading in a positive direction from a, a, an ethnic minority perspective. So I, I really respect and credit the work he's, he's done that we've tried to support. Um, and then sort of left field of that, um, the journalist, George DeBell, who works uh, at the Cricketer and previously of ESPN Cricket Info, has sort of been massive in in persistently pointing out these errors at the top game, at the top end. And if I'm being really honest, if it hadn't been for him working on the Azim Rafiq case and working on other cases to sort of champion um, the victims, if you like, of racial discrimination, then I, I think we'd still be in a position where this wasn't a topic where people wanted to talk about and it would be behind closed doors. And I think people like that are so important in making sure that it stays at the forefront of people's minds and we can't get away with a six to six point plan or something like that that doesn't work. Perfect. Yeah, I think that the rationale for why on both of those is is great. And um, yeah, I think for, for people that may be listening and want to go and do do a little bit of digging, go and see the work that these guys do because you, you obviously will learn, definitely learn something, but it might be something that you can steal. Because I always say the best coaches or best practitioners are the ones that go and steal from other people and implement it in a way that works in their in their area. But yeah, listen, Tom, really appreciate your time. A, a great conversation. Hopefully, we can catch up again soon. Thanks, mate. Really appreciate. It. Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.